You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Ashley Williams, also known as AG Dubs on the internet, founder and CEO of AXO and former member of the Rust core team. We get into all sorts of different types of niche domain knowledge, from CSS tricks in web development to low-level systems programming, package managers, and even organization-specific domain knowledge. Along the way, we go on several tangents and rabbit holes about software development in general. And now, niche domain knowledge. All right, Ashley, thanks for joining me. Hey. So you had this blog post recently, which I thought was really thought-provoking, and it was about this tool that you've developed, and it's something to help people who, let's say, don't want to write a website to release their software. Just automate that process, make a lot of it easier for people. And the part that I thought was really thought-provoking was this idea of, A, web development is not necessarily as easy as a lot of people make it out to be, and B, even if it is easy or you consider it easy, you might still not want to do it. And so there's a sort of obvious target audience for this. And this caused me to question this. Like, do I think web development's easier than other forms of development? I've done a lot of it. And the conclusion I came to was something along the lines of, it really depends on how deep you go with it. It feels like web development, if you stop pretty early, can be pretty easy. But if you showed somebody a website that was developed with very early on web development skills, I guess if they started from scratch, it might not look as good or feel as good or be as responsive or you know, work on mobile, things like that, cross-browser, as something that was either developed by somebody with more expertise or by somebody who used a tool like this or like a framework of some sort to just sort of take a lot of that work off of your shoulders. But I'm curious what you think. I mean, you wrote the blog post, so I'm sure you have uh, put some thought into this. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of my thinking around this came from being somebody who was a self-taught programmer, kind of like entering open source and kind of exploring. And my introduction to open source was Ruby. And then I ended up in Node.js and JavaScript. And as someone who's new to something, you kind of start getting this intuitive sense of like social hierarchies relatively quickly. But they're very intuitive. But it it definitely early on became very clear to me that, oh, Ruby, especially I think because Ruby was popularized by, you know, the DHH Rails blog example, Mm. which was you can just do it so fast. There was certainly a lot of, oh, well, Ruby is super easy. All of these tools and ecosystems that seemed to invest in developer experience, Mm. (laughs) which is, it's funny to think about it, but I think this is before people used to say developer experience, though obviously developer experience has been a thing since developers. Of course, yeah. But things that seem to invest in that experience versus the celebration of the arcane, which I would Uh describe of the technologies that came before. I mean, I'm skipping some, you know, PHP was there. There's like a lot of other ones that invested in experience. But like, there was the idea that this was easy. And therefore, the folks that did it had less skill. And it's interesting, because I think probably even before getting started in programming, I had this sense, because I'm not a CS major by trade. I studied like philosophy and neuroscience and a whole bunch of other weird stuff. Nice. But my first career, I was a teacher. And then while doing teaching, I was taking a bunch of design classes at the new school when I was in New York City. Uh And one of the things I always like to talk about is that being a designer and being a teacher are like two of the worst possible jobs ever. (laughs) There's one unique axis, which is that 
pretty much everybody thinks that they can do design and teach. <laughs> ah, sure. Almost everybody thinks that they can do it. And so they often have like a lot of opinions about it. And you often get a lot of very inexperienced, not deep opinions about how to do it. And so I don't wonder if there's also not a proximity bias for web development, because I think when you think about web development, it's very close to web design. And those two Mm. things actually used to be smushed together for a while, I think. And then I think you also see a lot of people learn and come to programming via web development now. So there's also a lot of teaching work around there. And so I wonder if it's not also proximity bias for web development being like really close to those two things that why people think those two things are easy is very <laughs> interesting. And I'm going to start talking about politics and social stuff. But yeah, I don't know. I think that's the little rabbit hole. But ultimately, like one of the things that you can see is programmers in those disciplines, like by and large, I think are considered less wizardly (laughs) than like somebody who works with C. I don't know. Writes Linux. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now C is an interesting example because I think I'm guessing that as a former member of the Rust core team, you've seen some of this even within the systems programming world where there's an element of like, oh, Rust has the borrow checker, which helps you prevent use after freeze, which is for babies. If you're a real programmer, you just know the lifetimes of everything that you're doing. And I have definitely seen elements of that on Hacker News and Reddit and stuff like that, where people are making comments that suggest they have this mentality that if your tools are helping you, that makes you less of a programmer. Yep. I definitely see that all the time. And it's very interesting because I think the Rust, the Rust example starts... I think making it more obvious how silly thinking the level of abstraction above you is easier. (laughs) Because if you think about having to have implemented something like the borrow checker and the idea that the borrow checker is like the number one cause for saying that Rust has an incredibly difficult learning curve. Sure. There's a silliness to the aspect of saying like, oh, well, using this tool that is kind of everyone agrees is like really hard to use makes you like a little baby versus me where like I seg fault with abandon. (laughs) Yeah. And like, it's funny because especially with my proximity to the rest world, I spent a lot of time talking to embedded developers and they're just like, yeah, cute, cute. Like, Right. You, we're going, we don't have the standard library. Like, right. You use the heap? Oh, that's interesting. Right? <laughs> All right, what a bunch of babies. <laughs> I had a friend recently who was recounting a conversation where they said, like, oh, the instruction set architecture is too high level for us. And I said, <laughs> sure. All right. Yeah. And so I know when I started getting, one of the things that I did when I started getting into Rust was like, Rust, everyone was always like, oh, Rust is systems programming language. I was like, oh, okay, what do you do with it then? They're like, right operating systems, I guess. Like, I don't know. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, I've never done that. Why don't I try and do that? And so yeah. my partner and I worked on this toy operating system project, which was super fun. But like one of the things that I learned 
especially coming from maybe the higher end of the stack, the steps you have to do, like do it during like a boot sequence, like reveal that architectures aren't all that different from like the incompatibility issues of the browser wars of like <laughs> Yeah. A lot of the time, it, the problems, if you squint, just feel really similar, which is we're all trying to build abstractions and sometimes we don't line them up and then we have to do all this weird complex stuff to make the abstractions work together. And okay, yours has to do with this stuff. Mine has to do with browsers. But ultimately, I feel like the work that people are doing is just this weird abstraction work. And it's not that different regardless of where you are on the stack. I definitely feel that there's an element of familiarity at play here where it's I am familiar with this domain. And so it feels like, oh, you don't know how hard it is in this domain because I have put in all these hours and I've run into all these edge cases and foot guns and I have this hard earned, hard won knowledge that you don't need over there in baby town with your thing that makes everything easy for you. And one of the things that comes to mind is that I like what you're saying about there's a lot of similarities between doing really low level programming and web development. And I've definitely found similarities in terms of how it feels to work in different things. Like, I wouldn't say that they're the same, certainly. But I also would say that there's a lot of commonalities, especially when you think about things like, I mean, I remember back in the day, learning about Internet Explorer 6, 7, 8 quirks. (laughs) IE7 was great because it had border radius. And IE6, you had to make a little PNG. But then again, 6 didn't support transparent PNG. So you'd had to use transparent GIF, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I'll invite a flame war. <laughs> and then you'd use background repeat to tile it over to make your fake rounded corners. And uh, back then it was popular to have shadows and stuff that you would also have to oh, simulate yeah. that. This is why I was a Flash developer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> Took care of that. Really. Right. <laughs> <laughs> In that world, there's this set of weird quirks and weird edge cases and stuff. And I definitely feel that there was a lot of hard-won knowledge back then. And I could pretty easily look at today and be like, you kids with your border radius, I had to walk two miles in the snow uphill both ways to get a rounded corner, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I can apply that same thing. Like now that I am doing a lot more low-level stuff, like I was recently doing a bunch of bit shifts on a parser based on this talk with Danielle Lemire that I had a few episodes ago. And I was like, this is really cool. It feels really exciting and powerful and low-level. But at the end of the day, it still feels conceptually like there's a bag of tricks that I'm building up here. And there's edge cases that I'm learning to watch out for. And I didn't know them before and I'm learning them. But fundamentally, I think my brain was doing the same stuff with CSS. And yep. maybe with your neuroscience background, you have more <laughs> precise words than I do <laughs> to describe what, what brain stuff is happening there. But it definitely doesn't feel categorically different. It feels like the tricks are different and the techniques are different. And that's part of what's fun about it and enjoyable to me to learning new stuff and moving into new domains. But it doesn't feel like it's fundamentally different. Yeah, I super agree. And you said two things there that I want to touch on, but I want to make sure I hit the earlier one that you said first. So you mentioned this thing about familiarity bias. And I think familiarity bias is super fascinating. And I think what's really interesting is usually when I'm talking about familiarity bias, I'm almost saying the opposite of what I think you said which is people love talking about what's easy to use, what's simple to use. And my favorite thing Uh to say is that ergonomics is like 80% familiarity. And then I say it's Mm. 10% laziness, 10% ambition. But (laughs) the vast majority of it 
is just things that are easy to use are just like stuff you've used before. Uh huh. Uh huh. And people really don't like that because I feel like computer science is the last bastion of people in science thinking there's objective truth. The human experience doesn't have like an objective truth to it, personally, in my opinion. But I think what's really neat about what you said is familiarity gives you this two sides of the same piece of paper. One, you know, you are intimately familiar with a lot of the complexity and you know how to use the complicated ways to manage that complexity. But also on the same side, your familiarity means that that complexity often when you're evaluating other things, what you're used to is what you find easy. And so that I was just like, oh, what an interesting thing, because it absolutely has both of those effects. <laughs> yeah. But you had a second thing, right? Yeah, but I mean, you can riff off that if you want. My second okay. thing kind of pulls We'll do out. a tangent off the tangent, and then we'll come back to a different tangent. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I love that, those points about familiarity. And another one that comes to mind now that you say this is familiarity with not just a particular technology, but even a particular stack at like an individual organization. Your company's build process, your company's particular set of technologies and how they fit together. There's also some hard-won domain knowledge around how does our build work? How does our deploys work? And maybe it's easy to say like, oh, well, every Rails shop is alike. And certainly they have a lot in common when it comes to that part of the stack. But depending on when the organization was started, they probably had a different palette of options as far as what infrastructure to put it on and what CSS technologies were available because browsers didn't all have the same ones or new things hadn't been released. And that leads to different patterns. So I don't know of any company I've moved between where I went from one company to the next and I thought, oh yeah, their build's exactly the same as the previous company. The way they deploy stuff, infrastructure, it's all the same. That's never happened. It's always a brand new set of tricks to learn and foot guns to watch out for and sharp edges to steer clear of. And that's always why there's some level of implicit advantage to seniority in the terms of tenure at a company is just that you've been around longer, you've picked up more of those things. And as a tangent off of that tangent, very briefly, it also makes me wonder why companies don't explicitly like overtly value that more. Like somebody who's stuck around longer even if you're paying them exactly the same salary as someone who's, let's say, approximately equal in terms of hand-waving here, like skills or whatever contributions, the person you just hired does not have any of that knowledge and they're just going to find it out by bumping into the sharp edges and that'll slow them down or maybe break production or things like that. There's just implicit value in having someone who's been around to see and learn all those things. And very rarely will organizations invest in the time to actually write down all of those sharp edges and document them, part because that's teaching and teaching is actually hard as it turns out. But I mean, given that you would think that there would be some explicit policy where it's, yeah, the longer you've been at the company, the more you get paid or, or something like that. But I don't, I don't really see that done. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And there was like a rabbit hole I went down for a talk five years ago where I was like doing some research about this ergonomics familiarity question. And I got into this rabbit hole about people who do speed runs with basically like glitches in like the physics system of the software of the video game. And like, I think when we think about the stacks and like the software ecosystems we build up just within companies or like you're even your own little universe of the company, like 
a lot of the abstractions we end up using, we experience kind of on the level that we experience just physics in the world. Mm. And I do think that as an industry, tech has like undervalued education and documentation. But I also think documenting some of these things is uniquely difficult because it's like asking a fish to explain water. (laughs) Because it becomes the way we build and then use abstractions so rapidly. They become second nature so quickly that they become invisible to us very quickly. And it's incredibly hard to teach stuff that's invisible. And so I know at least at companies like there's, I always think this like sacred month when someone new joins, because I'm like, cool, you can see the water. Please write down <laughs> what the water looks like, because like I can't see it anymore. And I need someone who has fresh eyes to be able to do so. But like, it's just so true that the abstractions we have, and there's like a desire to share them. And like, there are places where things are similar, but we end up building up these little universes that the longer you're in that universe, absolutely, the more productive you are able to be. Yeah. And so I do think it's interesting to try and like talk about how to necessarily reward that productivity, because then you do fall into this trap of, am I making things specifically complicated for job security? And like, I don't think there's a ton of humans doing that. I don't know. Maybe (laughs) I am a very pessimistic and critical person. So I don't think I'm being naive about that. But like, I just think that this kind of stuff happens naturally so easily that like you don't have to have the intention for it to happen. Yeah. Well, and it's changing all the time. It's not just that people get used to it, but then some new tool comes out and someone's like, hey, let's try this out. And now there's that part of the code base. And you need to know that that part of the code base, you do things a little bit differently than everywhere else. And or that new tool unlocks some new pattern. And now there's like the new preferred way of doing it and everything else that was done in the old pattern potentially for very good reasons, because the new thing has some important advantage to it. The old thing is like, well, I know there's a ton of examples of that. And if you're going looking around trying to follow what was done before, you'll find all of these much more than you'll find the new way. But this is not the way to do it. You have to do it the new way. Or you should do it the new way. Hard to document that. You can just write it down quickly. But then how discoverable is that? If you just write down everything like that quickly, do you have this dictionary sized chunk of massive set of documentation like, hey, welcome to the team here's your reading material, you know, they're not gonna retain all that. (laughs) So yeah, and I'll admit, you were talking about my blog post, which is from a tool that this new company that I started is building. But like, I do think the most interesting thing about software is how software changes. And like, that's why like my company's focused on release engineering, because I literally think that like, there's just such infinite depth in like, how we try to successfully have software change (laughs) that like you can just focus just on that and there's plenty to do but like what you're talking about with onboarding humans it's something that i found myself talking about a lot recently only because everyone's trying to be worried now about how we bring ai up to speed how we onboard ai and weirdly it's better funded now than onboarding humans and i'm just like (laughs) that people care now because it's like robots well, well, or just as a giant money hose for anything with AI on it. I hope when you're raising money for your startup, you just find some way to incorporate AI into the pitch, even oh, if it's, yeah. <laughs> you know. Most of the time, I just say, I think that we are AI resilient as a company, because regardless of who is doing programming, software still needs to be installed somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't been disrupted yet, at least as far as I can tell. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, software loves to change super, super quickly. And we are not 
very good at managing it at all. And the yeah. whole downstream documentation, all of that is super hard. I mean, if we use my physics metaphor for an example, like humans are also bad at dealing with change just in the world. We're like, oh, like the climate's changing in a bad way. How do we handle it? And we're just like, we're not going to. <laughs> yeah. I actually, this is a super huge tangent, but I actually thought that Game of Thrones, maybe I was overestimating the writing or at least the writing that got taken over at the end. But I actually thought that it was building up to be a parable about climate change where it's like there's this giant threat that everybody agrees is coming, or at least at some point everybody agrees is coming. And everybody's squabbling amongst themselves about less important stuff rather than focusing on the big thing that affects all of them. And the moral of the story I thought it was building up to was going to be like, yeah, everybody just gets wiped out. And it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't have squabbled about stuff that was less important than this. Maybe you should have found a way to put aside your differences and work together. (laughs) Yeah. Without spoiling it, that's not what it turned out to be. I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say that's not how it ended. But I, I really thought that like early on, that was like, oh, this seems to be what they're going for. This is something that will resonate with lots of people. And that idea comes up in lots of different places, like you were saying, in, in humans. It's not just like, one or two places it's like kind of universal of just there's something that's a problem that's so universal that everybody's like yeah this is a problem like release engineering it's like everybody agrees that this is something that we do and then if you sit down and do it although actually maybe it's something that has more in common with web development that a lot of people just can wave it away it's like yeah that's just easy but yeah i mean if you actually sit down and try to do it properly it's like if your release engineering process is just like all right here's the tag check it out and build from source <laughs> Obviously, that's not nearly as good of an experience as things like I've had this happen on my open source projects. It's like some set of people who always have been like, hey, could you publish a change log for this thing that you that like the new release that you made? And I remember thinking at some point, like I could, but that's just not how I want to spend my time on this project. I understand that it would be valuable to you. And I also understand that I'm the one who has the most knowledge about this. I just it's not how I want to spend my weekend. And it's valuable, but it's not trivial. <laughs> it's, it takes time and effort. Oh my gosh, we could probably do a whole episode just on like how hard doing change logs is. <laughs> like eight people who start by being like, "There's 400 automated tools for writing a change log," and I'll be like, "Funny, it's still a massive problem. I wonder." Why. Yeah, <laughs> I've actually never tried one of those tools. How do they supposedly? I mean, what do they do? Yeah, so. The first thing to say is like they are not a monolith, but the vast majority of the tools that do changelog generation tend to focus on your commit messages. Mm -hmm. And then they require you to make your commit messages pretty structured. Oh. And that becomes (laughs) pretty big non-starter, like for anybody who is like getting contributions or like doesn't want to spend like their entire day like rebasing like main like to make make everything fit the same structure and then some people push it to their contributors and you're like cool another roadblock for contributors to open right and i often find that a lot of the changelog generators they really focus on this like structured commit thing and then they're also just like really really focused on sember and like making sure that your sember version choice for that release is aligned with the commits that were like included which is like cool and good and like i think sember is important i also think sember is incredibly subjective yeah and not a science which is at the end probably all my opinions about computer science and <laughs> being like it's an art but yeah anyways so i tend not to use them for axo we have to like solve this problem at some point and so 
I'm thinking more towards using the PR as the unit to like look at. Mm. But I think one of the things that's really interesting about change logs, and I think you'll find this as like a split amongst the community of change log people. And I might be just like, I suspect that there is a somewhat silent majority of people who agree with me on this, but because they're silent, this is like an assumption I'm making Mm -hmm. is that like the most valuable content in a change log is not something that you can auto generate. Mm. And so the value in like a good change log tool for me is how can I get all the stuff that I can generate out of the way such that all the time I do invest in my change log is me writing the like meaningful prose that like people actually want to read. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's documentation. It's like <laughs> auto-generated documentation tends to be about as valuable as you would guess it is based on that description. Yeah. <laughs> Sember is an interesting topic. So I had Predrag on earlier talking about like cargo Sember checks in a past episode. I'm excited about that tool. I think that tool is really cool. And I have all intentions of adding it to like the AXO stack for like releasing. Nice. I think it's great. <laughs> yeah. But it like what you said, I definitely agree with, which is that Sember is not a science in the sense that I don't think it can be fully automated, I guess, because of the halting problem, if nothing else. It's like, you can say certain things are definitely breaking changes. You say like, this is 100% a breaking change. And so like, you need to at least bump this digit. But saying like, for example, yeah, no, you don't need to bump the major version because this is not actually breaking anything. This will not break anyone's code is really hard because number one, even a bug fix can break someone's code. Making any change to the software, even if it's just <laughs> seems like at face value, inarguably, just a I complete improvement. That haunts me. Oh no! All right, wait. I, I got to hear the story. <laughs> All right. So it's a really old story, and it goes back to when I was working at NPM. This is like before TypeScript was really a thing. But mm-hmm. as somebody who works in Rust now and loves her types, error types are like super useful, and important, and some people recognize that error types were really important. But in the absence of types would depend on the text of the error. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, this is the nightmare scenario. Yeah. Uh. Anyways, I think you've just completed the story. I suspect anybody listening can understand. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, major breaking change ends up being like changing the text of the error. Right. Like we we made the error message a little bit nicer. It's like, why? Why did you do that to me? (laughs) Everything broke. Oh, no. Uh, anyways, yeah, stringly typing things is bad. I think <laughs> it ended up being like fixing a typo in the error message like caused it. It was like just this incredible, I don't know, confluence. It was just like a really great example of stuff just being very sideways. But yeah, the other thing that I think is really interesting about Simber and like what is a breaking change versus what is not. And this also goes back to the idea that like documentation is hard and just like a lot of people don't do it is like, So in something with like strict types, in theory, there is like a documented API, especially in something like Rust, where like you can run Rust doc and it'll like generate some amount of shallow doc strictly based on the structure of your program. Sure. But ultimately what Sember is trying to say is I wrote documentation and I told you as a user that this is what the behavior is. And like Mm -hmm. when I change that behavior, when I change the contract, That's a breaking change, and that's when I will signal that to you. But what's interesting is that unless your program is like fully documented, like unless your contract is 
fully saturated for like the surface area of your program, there's just like a whole bunch of undefined behavior there. Right. And then like, who's to say if this is a contract break or not? And like some people are on the side of none of it is. Some people are on the side of all of it is. That tends to be how Rust people are, which is why there's not a single crate that's like a 1.0 on crates.io. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's really about having a contract with your users and then like also expecting that like your documentation is also your user's expectation, which is can be all over the place. Yeah, I, I really love Hiram's Law. I'm paraphrasing because I don't want to look it up, <laughs> but it's something along the lines of every observable behavior that your software exhibits will eventually be depended on by someone. And if you change it, it'll break them. Error yeah. message is a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. That haunts me whenever I'm making Semver decisions. I'm just like, hmm. <laughs> so speaking of package managers, so this is something like, so I've been working on this programming language and the package manager story has been like in the design phase for literally multiple years now. And I definitely have an appreciation for how hard of a problem that is. I think it's pretty easy to imagine like, hey, the user experience I want is I just say like install this thing and it just appears on my machine and it's great. But it turns out making a system that does that, well, let me say it's fraught. It seems to be fraught because this is something that unlike, like if I make an open source library and I publish it and I'm like, hey, I made this thing, you can feel free to use it. It doesn't cost me any money whenever anyone downloads that and installs it. It's just like, yeah, there's just, as many people use it, that's fine. With package managers, it's different because now I have to pay for infrastructure. And if I'm paying for infrastructure, it matters suddenly a lot whether one person is using it or a million people are using it. And I wonder about like, to what extent, and maybe you know this or maybe not, like the people who were early on doing NPM, like Isaac, were they thinking about like, hey, what if this becomes the biggest package manager in history? I'm guessing not. <laughs> that would be like a really bold thing to assume, certainly. But I wonder if, if anyone even knows that. And, and it seems like one of those scenarios where you think about like, I just want to make a nice tool for a couple of people to use. And then maybe if it's really successful, there are just all of these early on decisions that you're just stuck with and they just maybe cost a lot of dollars even to address. Yeah. Well, I guess what I will say, at least of those early node folks and like just knowing them personally, I was never in the room for when they were like originally making it or anything. But I do think that they're all quite ambitious humans. And like, I don't know if they thought it was going to be like the biggest one on earth. But like, <laughs> I think that they knew it was going to be big. But hmm. I think what I'll also say, and like, I think this is potentially true of everything that ends up getting big and it's a gross generalization. And maybe it's just because I've been like doing the startup thing so much. But I think one of the most important things that you can do to help get something big is to solve the problems people currently have hmm. really, really well. Yeah. And like, despite the fact that you are likely just i'm gonna use the word haunted a lot i guess i'm very haunted like, <laughs> haunted by like the future problems you know you're creating for yourself hmm. but solving the acute pain as quickly and early as possible is i think one of the things that really helps build that momentum that turns into the hockey stick growth i once said <laughs> on a stage at a node foundation conference just like, <laughs> how you end up with that but yeah i mean like i know something that like isaac and i battled over for a little while which was and i also think it makes sense that we battled over it not that he was had a bad opinion or anything but like the real belief was npm 
is for library authors writing libraries for server-side JavaScript. Oh, interesting. What's really interesting is if you look at NPM today, first off, application builders are the number one users. It's not really for library developers. But if they hadn't focused on library developers first, I don't think they would have gotten the growth because you don't have people building applications with libraries until the libraries exist, right? Yeah. But then it was the fact that like front-end JavaScript, oh, they already have a package manager. I don't know. I have a Bower shirt somewhere in my house. Oh, Bower. (laughs) Yeah, the parrot, right? (laughs) (laughs) But like... There was not this belief like, oh, people are going to use this for front-end JavaScript. And like who they thought the customer was and like what they were doing on almost every axis just like completely changed. Yeah, I'm sure you remember this package, but like an early one that I remember in the Bauer era coming out and the pitch of this reveals what the thinking was at the time. It was called Browserify. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the whole point of Browserify was to take a node package that was designed for running on Node.js on the back end and package it up in a way where you could use it in the browser. So you had browserified it, which today sounds ludicrous. Like, what do you mean? It just that's you go to NPM for all of your front end dependencies. That's like 99% of front end developers are doing that. But yeah, I remember Bower as well. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. Being in the startup world and like investors and stuff, it's just like end user innovation. And I think the critical example of that is the hashtag on Twitter, where it's just like, give people something that solves a problem they have well enough that they are just going to take it and they are going to run with it. And then your job now is to follow them. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like, ultimately, like you do, it's very hard in that situation to build stuff that lasts. And like, I have all the horror stories of living through trying to scale the registry like oh yeah scaling is not like money aside there's just what if you get x requests per second how do you deal with that that's not trivial either as anyone who will tell you who's worked on a system that gets that kind of traffic yeah it's really intense and i mean like one of the strange things there and like i feel like i learned this lesson really well at cloudflare is it is very useful early on to figure out how growth doesn't grow exponentially with your costs. How can you make growth? And I think that package managers really do struggle with that unless you get real clever with it, but it's hard and package managers aren't making money still, I don't think. Right. And that's, well, that's exactly where I'm at is I've asked myself that same question. And it seems like fundamentally, it's like, I need to not be in charge of infrastructure costs somehow. Like it needs to be that if there's a registry, ideally, it's all static files that could be hosted for free, for free on some service. And then, but this gets into questions like, how does your module version resolution system work? And things like that, like, do you need to check on every installation if there's a new version out? Does your system for that support that or even require that? That has a dollar impact suddenly. And that's not something I would have guessed coming into this is, yeah, that's actually like, if you don't even need to ping a server, to do the equivalent of like npm install ever then that's just a bunch of dollars that go away that you don't have to worry about but that has implications for the like design of the language of the package manager and stuff so how to balance all these things it's really really tricky it's complicated and like admittedly so this is like one of the things i like think about a lot with axo because depending on like 
how hard you squint looking at what we're building. Like you're like, are you eventually going to build a package manager? <laughs> you know, knowing me, like the chances that's not totally far off. NPM cargo like, XO. <laughs> oh my God. I know, right? It ends in an O. <laughs> but one of the things that I definitely learned really hard, even just working in Rust and doing infrastructure, is it's really hard to centralize that infrastructure. But mm. people love centralized infrastructure for discovery. But centralized yeah. infrastructure for build sucks. Even yeah. DocRS, I know there's a whenever you have a package registry, usually you like hang a bunch of little services off of it that like do like a post published lifecycle thing and then Rust, like it'll generate your docs for you. But there's always people watching the queue being, oh, that person who like published the like 500 crate workspace is like clogged up the queue. Oh, no. And yeah. we used to have this at NPM where like there was like some really big packages and we could just feel them. Like you would get little warnings and like pager duty pings. They'd be like, no, it's just a really big package moving through the tubes. We're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but like one of the, the goals I have, at least with AXO, is I think package managers are great. And I think for like a library application building system, like you need to have them. But for like tooling, which admittedly is what a lot of these other like larger packages include, I wonder if there's not a way, and this is like the hypothesis of the company, to make release engineering self-publishing robust enough and have a great enough developer experience for the end user and the release engineer that those individual tool builders, those eng teams aren't relying exclusively on these package managers to be their distribution channels, but can own their own. And then from there, package managers can emerge more as this like centralized discovery mechanism without having to own all this infrastructure. And so it's like, okay, a big bet we're making is that enough tool builders have to use multiple channels anyways, that (laughs) they would pay some money to own, to like have the infrastructure to like own that process themselves. Yeah. So this is very similar to where I've ended up is that I was, well, one of the questions I was asking is because I know that like every time I see a discussion of this in like Hacker News, Reddit, whatever, somebody always clamors for a decentralized package manager ecosystem. And the thing that I believe is that if you have a decentralized package ecosystem, a centralized one will emerge from that because of the discovery problem. Because if you don't have a centralized place to discover it, you just don't that's why we have like web searches and like in the earliest days of the web's literally indexes like Yahoo just have a directory of all the different websites I mean, categorized. I hear about how I want to bring web rings back. Anyways. Oh, web rings are sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and any, we know anyone could, we just got to get together and do it. Well, I mean, we've got individual tool package pages for the stuff in our ecosystem. And what if we let people build web rings for them? <laughs> Nice, nice. We'll I love ship it. that. We'll see if anyone cares. I don't know if the, like the young kids don't. I remember I said it once in an investor meeting, and they were like, "Excuse me, what?" Like, I'm old. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, I, I bet a lot of people don't know what web rings are anymore. For those listening who don't know what web rings are, they were like back in the day when you just had web pages instead of everything being on Medium or whatever the Substack latest thing is. You would make your own web page, and the way that you would discover other web pages is like you and somebody else would agree. We are both going to put at the bottom of our web page a little link to the next page in their quote unquote ring. So I'm going to link to yours when you press the next button. It's going to go to yours, and you're going to agree that 
you're going to have the same button at the bottom, but it's the back button will go back to mine. And so you could just click through these and like discover more web pages by just moving through the ring. It's pretty cool. More sophisticated where there was a centralized list or index of all the pages in that web ring. So you could hit random on like right. a list and get the random one. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's a great example of the type of thing that I think would emerge from a decentralized system. And then the question becomes, if you know that there's going to emerge a decentralized system from whatever you're designing in terms of a package manager, a reasonable question is, well, do you want to be in charge of that or not? And if you say, I don't want to be in charge of that, you are essentially saying, I hope that whoever does build that, and then it will get popular because there's just, like you said, there's demand for it. People are going to want that. I hope that whoever does that, does it in a way that works out okay for me. Because (laughs) (laughs) that's another thing I think people don't necessarily understand is that even if you're creating the thing, and even if you're saying like, hey, here's how I intend for this to be used. Again, Hiram's Law, like if people can use it in a different way, they might do it. Somebody might build their package index that really depends entirely on the behavior of your error messages. And now you're like, I can never change my error messages or it's going to break the centralized package manager that everybody uses somehow, right? (laughs) Like things like that could happen. So my conclusion was try to make it so that the infrastructure is decentralized, but the index is centralized and we make it and ship it with the language. That's where I ended up, which it sounds like is a similar conclusion to what you came up with. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely still playing around. And the idea is like, what are the little building blocks that we can build that work and solve people's problems enough that we can start squinting and seeing what these things look like. And like the other thing I guess I'll say is it is true that centralized discovery is really awesome. But we'd probably both be lying to ourselves if we thought that discovery on package manager websites was good. <laughs> I don't know anyone who's like, yeah, search on Crates.io is awesome. And this is not to dunk on Crates.io. I think people would also agree, as someone who worked at NPM forever, everyone was like, NPM search is terrible. I think there were like three separate venture funded companies that were like just focused on improving. Oh, wow. That's how complicated that space is. And one of the ideas that we had so early on at NPM, and I'm like, really interested in and I'm going to bring it back to web rings because I'm like just obsessed with web rings is we had this <laughs> idea we knew early on that like search on npm was it's not good you're not really finding what you want the way people really choose what libraries to pick some people you'll do a naive search look at which one has the most downloads and just be right. like I'm going to do this one more than likely you might even just search for a tutorial on how to do a thing and then just like use the thing the tutorial told you to use yeah. or you're going to ask your friend But usually you're not looking just for one package. You're often looking for like a collection of them, especially if they work together. And so we had this idea of curated lists, which is that like you could publish and like in the Axel world, I kind of think of it as a little toolbox and be like, okay, these are like the tools that I put in this box. I use these together and this works really well. And have that being a unit of discovery and It's also basically riffing off of, I don't think Amazon search or recommendations work this way anymore, but like the OG Amazon recommendation thing, which is it recommends you things that people who bought the thing you're looking at also bought those things. And so Uh implementing like ways for people to create their own lists and also just determining likeness based on just nearness data would definitely help. But like there's, 
I think if you were to look at like how to do centralized discovery better and you could just worry about discovery and not worry about keeping the lights on and the servers up, there's like so much interesting stuff that you could do there. Yeah. <laughs> Most package managers are just like, oh God, my bill, we're getting <laughs> paged. And they're not thinking like, people really aren't finding what they need. Yeah, right. It's like, that's a problem that you work on when you have the luxury of, yeah, <laughs> of yeah. thinking about stuff like that. I remember talking with Evan Shaplicki in the early days of Elm's package manager story about this question of downloads. Because, yeah, I agree. Like a lot of people, and I certainly do this on crates.io, is looking for, okay, what's the number of downloads on this thing? And if you break it down, I think what I'm really trying to ask is, I have two questions, broadly speaking, whenever I'm looking for a new package. One is, is this actually going to solve my problem? Or is the scope of my problem different than the scope of what they solve? And then two is, how well made is it? If it's something that somebody just like slapped together over a weekend, I'm probably going to run into lots of bugs. I don't want to do that. I want something that's somebody spent more time on. But that threshold is a moving target depending on what it is. If it's something really esoteric, I might say, well, yeah, this looks slapped together on a weekend, but that's so much better than starting from scratch. So I still would like to use it and maybe I'll contribute back to it or something. So it's not like there's one universal metric for that. And the downloads thing, Evan made a really good point, which is that, at least in Elm's case, it's designed so that it's pretty easy to set up caching on your server. It's like there's one environment variable you set. And it's like, cool, now your downloads will be persistent between builds. He's like, well, here's the thing. If you've got CI servers and they run all the time, and you don't configure your cache, that really inflates your download numbers for that package compared to somebody who's using a package that did correctly configure their cache. So it's like this bad incentive. It's like, really, package managers are now encouraged to, not that they would, but like their package looks more widely used the more people who depend on it that have misconfigured their caches or not configured their caches, which makes it a very noisy heuristic. And nevertheless, people are still like, yeah, but I still want it. It's better than nothing. And what Evan ended up going with, which I think is really interesting, is that, and I don't know of any other package manager that has done this or that would necessarily want to do this, but he was trying to come up with some metric that's like the best proxy for is it well made or not, that's still objective. And so what he ended up going with is the number of times that the creator of the package has given a talk at a dedicated Elm conference. And this is incredibly manual to update, but it also only needs to be updated a couple times a year because there aren't Elm conferences every day. So, I mean, there's just like, you can go like look at the code. These are going, do things that don't scale when you don't have to scale. <laughs> right. And it's like, it doesn't, it's never going to scale to an unreasonable level unless somehow there's like one Elm conference per minute, which I mean, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> there's never been any I mean, famous last words, but there's never been any programming language community, I don't think, that's had like multiple conferences every single day of the year. I don't I think. Feel like JavaScript might get close if you include meetups. I don't know what the meetups This does not are. include meetups. It was specifically like, yeah. there's a dedicated conference that like charges an admission price that's you come and, and it's like Elm focused. But I think that was like, it was effective. When you search, you would get, if you went into the community and asked people like, is this package reliable or not? Is this like going to be a good one? you would get answers that lined up pretty well with if you searched for it and then like, what are the top results for that? Now that doesn't solve the question of, is the scope right? Is this actually going to solve my problem? But yeah. it did a surprisingly good job of addressing the reputational question of what's the likelihood that this is going to be well made. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's really interesting. I like immediately, like there's like a, a, some like exceptions to this rule and like some system affordances that could be a little complicated. I don't think I've ever seen Detolney give a talk, but I use the sure. Hangouts library. <laughs> yeah, you, so so you definitely miss people that way, right? Yeah, like it's 
it's similar to the like automated simver check where it's like it can get yeah. you baseline and like it can solve a certain set of problems but you definitely yeah like definite downside of that is you miss out on people who are great and not conference speakers yeah totally so there's definitely like you I said it's hard metrics, <laughs> i have to like give a plug and i have no idea if you looked at exo's website and saw this like a lot of what we're doing right now at the company i call it like a slow burn to like what i think will like really be our bread and butter but it's going to be really complicated is so I've spent so much time doing developer tools and developer experience work. I think mm -hmm. all of it is super undervalued. And I think one of the biggest reasons it's undervalued is there's no great way to measure it. Mm -hmm. It is not measurable. And for better or worse, the universe works in such a way that the things that get funded, the things that get attention are the things that you can measure. And so personally, like, I'm really excited not only to do download metrics, but also usage metrics for tools. Mm. And like a lot of the work that we're doing right now, creating pages for folks and helping automate releases and stuff like that is build the infrastructure for that to sit on top of. But metrics are obviously really complicated. Did you yeah. see like what happened with Go in like February or whatever? No, I didn't hear about this. Oh, Russ Cox who I think often writes very like thoughtful blog posts. Some people feel differently. But he wrote, like I would say, a uniquely thoughtful blog post about wanting to add usage metrics to the Go compiler, Go toolchain. Hmm. And there was a really big question of whether or not it should be opt-in or opt-out. Hmm. The question of defaults, as everyone loves to argue about. Yeah. And it had the reaction that I think you would probably anticipate, which is everybody yeah. was like, get off my lawn. You know, all my personal data This is a problem. Now, of course, it doesn't help that Russ Cox is sitting there with like a big old Google banner behind him. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the like track record there is not awesome, right? But I think one of the, the thing that happened next was actually what I thought was most interesting was there was the classic backlash that you would anticipate. And then there was a backlash to the backlash. And the backlash to the backlash had two angles to it. And the first angle was, this is why we can't have nice things. One of the mm -hmm. ways that Russ talked about it in the blog post was like, hey, lots of people use Go. Not a lot of people contribute to Go. Mm -hmm. And we have to change the software over time. And we'd like to do that in a way where... We don't break you, but like we can do the longest, loudest, like, hey, this is changing kind of shout out in the open source land. But most people who are using Go are not looking at that. And so yeah. the only way they know when it changes is when they update and it breaks. And then they like start being a big old stink on like Twitter or wherever people are being stinks these days. Yeah. So it was like, hey, like if you're interested in like not breaking, and this goes back to our Simber conversation even, is like if you're able to give folks data about how you're using something, like they are able to change that in theory with that data in mind. Right. But the angle that I thought was the most interesting, and I'll fully admit is the angle I'm going to go to market with, is so many people depend on open source software. 99.9999% of those people do not contribute back. And like, that's okay. Yes, we should make contributing to open source easier, but I think we can make it as easy as possible. And like capitalism sucks everybody's time up. Like you just like, ain't nobody got time to do that. That's someone else's like whole job. But a way that you can give back and a way you can pay for using that software is to provide 
And obviously, like good data hygiene is like a bare minimum here of table stakes. But like assuming they do privacy preserving, like transparent data collection, like that's how you can give back. That's your GitHub sponsors contribution. Hmm. You don't have to worry about how good your bug report is. We're just like automatically collecting your bug report. Interesting. But of course, how do you get that installed on enough people's systems that you can collect that data dot 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 without becoming a package manager? (laughs) I mean, yeah, there's a lot of interesting ways about like how to do that type of data collection. Also, if you wanted to say do data collection on like literally the install process, there's like a fascinating Mm. bootstrapping problem there. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which is like super fun. And like, this is what I spent a lot of time thinking about. But I think this is an idea whose time has come. Obviously, I'm making like a big bet on it. But like the main motivation being like, I want us to have better software. And instead of like our software is getting like worse and worse and worse until we get mad and just start using another tool, we use a new tool like every six months. What if we didn't have to do that? I think this would help that. (laughs) That sounds really nice when you say it that way. (laughs) (laughs) I've been working on the message. But yeah, I mean, we'll see. It's certainly like also like there's like 800 billion challenges there too. Sure, sure. But yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Wow, we, we talked about a lot of stuff. Anything else we should make sure to talk about before we wrap up? I really wish that there were more like hallway track conferences for people who are building package managers. <laughs> <laughs> I would totally I attend that conference. That, like I feel like yeah. when I ran, so NPM had one comp its, its entire life and I ran it in like, I don't know, 2015, 2016. And I did a panel of people working on package managers and it was the best, most grumpy thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like half therapy session, half technical work group. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I would totally love to, <laughs> to, to attend one of those. a YouTube video of that still exists somewhere, probably. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like people working in this space, there's so many interesting things to learn from each other. And yet almost all of the connections I've seen in that community are like totally random, like happenstance. Like, oh, I just I met you and like, oh, cool. Now we're talking about this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, let me know if it ever happens. I would love to attend. Yeah, I think we are slowly gathering folks who like these topics in our Discord channel. (laughs) Just because we talk about this stuff a lot. Yeah. But it's, yeah, we'll see. I always joke like I'm going to end up working at UPS when I retire because I'm like so obsessed with package management. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. But... Yeah. No, this has been super fun. I could talk about this stuff for hours. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah, well, thanks so much for joining me. This is really enjoyable. I, I learned stuff and yeah, I got some new perspectives. So thanks so much. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks. Have a good one. <laughs> you too. <laughs>